This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Nancy Liu. Nancy is the CEO and co-founder of Nplug, a leading digital signage software company used by Fortune 500 companies, banks, hospitals, manufacturing facilities, elevators, and universities. The software enables businesses to distribute visual communication, such as dashboards, videos, presentations, safety messages, news, and other content on any digital screen. Nancy was named Forbes 30 Under 30 and Fortune's 10 Most Promising Women Entrepreneurs. In her free time, Nancy enjoys playing tennis, snowboarding, and flying planes. She is a concert pianist and has performed live on NBC and ABC. Nancy graduated from UC Berkeley with a BS in Business Administration and BA in Political Economy. Nancy lives in Los Angeles and is a Dodgers fan. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, we want to we want to start by saying that that is a very shortened version of her bio, and the full bio will be inside our show notes. Yes, we couldn't <laughs> fit all of Nancy's incredible background in our thirty second clip, so we would definitely include everything in the text. Definitely, yeah. Today's a very special episode. Nancy is my hero. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Like it's, I've been fanning girling over her for a while now, and Nancy. Let's hop right into like, like let's talk a little more about your childhood and how you became the person that you are today. Sounds good. Yeah. So that's where'd you grow up and um, what was your upbringing like? Yeah. So I uh, was born in China, and so for the first couple of years of my life, I actually lived with different family members, grandparents, aunts and uncles. So for example, my aunt and uncle in China, when I was a kid, I actually called them mom and dad wow. because my parents were actually in Europe. So basically I was born and then my parents went to Europe. They couldn't afford to take me along. So I just lived with different relatives as is kind of, a, I think a lot of uh, folks that I know. And then finally, uh, when my parents came to the U.S., they picked me up or my mom picked me up in China and then brought me to the U.S. Uh, and at that point, by the time I came to the U.S., I was five years old. And I think I had not seen my dad literally in three to four years straight, which is pretty crazy um, as as a kid, um, but not that I really remember that much of it. But uh, then went and landed in Fort Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is this uh, kind of retirement feeling kind of town in in Colorado. So I grew up in Colorado before uh, then moving to California for college. Oh, well, that's awesome. And did your parents, like your parents studied for their PhD in Europe, right? Yeah. So my parents actually had undergrad in China. My dad had a master's in China already. And then they went to Europe for my dad to get his second master's, my mom for her first one. And then when they came to the U.S., my dad was getting his Ph.D. Mm -hmm. uh, And then my mom was then working on her second master's. 
Yeah. And when your parents brought you over to the U.S., you were living in subsidized housing. Was that right? Yeah, as many immigrant families do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a humble upbringing, too. And, you know, congratulations to your parents for raising such a successful daughter, you know. And <laughs> They're great, although they will say I was literally, I was definitely a rebellious kid. <sighs> Like middle school, high school, I had college boyfriends. So for all the Asian <laughs> parents out there, like you have a problem child, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I want to, we heard some other podcasts too that, you know, you started playing the piano as a kid and it was like basically self-taught and that sort of taught you like wow. the discipline and the self-hustle that you kind of like rolled over to your entrepreneurship. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit more, more, that, more about that, that process and that journey? Yeah. So my parents, when I was six years old, we had somebody that lived in the apartment above us. It was a girl who had a piano. And so I would hear her playing piano. And I think at some point I asked my parents like, oh, I would love to play the, the piano. And my parents are, they're working multiple jobs. My mom's coming home late working as a waitress at night, right? It's like, okay, how, how do we get piano? But they found a piano for a hundred dollars at a garage sale. It had some broken keys. Uh, but we got the piano and that was a piano that I played on for many years, uh, won lots of competitions practicing on that piano, but they got me this piano and uh, my first, uh, you know, piano teacher made a huge impact in my life. Uh, her name was Violet Hine, mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Hine, and, and she spent many years teaching me piano and she charged $8 an hour for piano lessons, which is incredible. Uh, it's just, and that was really the only thing my parents could really afford. And so I'm so grateful for that. But yeah, piano was the first thing where it's the connection as a kid. If you put work into doing something, you can see the results and there's no better thing than learning an instrument or a sport. Certainly for me, it was an instrument and my parents couldn't afford any kind of like after school activity, right? So I go home, I have no, no options. I just have a piano. So <laughs> I play piano because there literally were no other things to do. And, and so I actually enjoyed playing piano. I still still play piano. This is uh, the grand piano that I remember my my parents when I was growing up. They're like, oh, if you win this like big piano competition, we'll we'll finally get like a grand piano. Well, I won that piano competition, but then I went to college, so I never got the the grand piano I wanted. And so finally, of course, in my adult life, finally fulfilled my own dream of wanting a grand piano. Uh, but yes, growing up, uh, I definitely learned discipline through piano and that you just have to put in time to, to get things regardless of what it is. I love that. I love that it wasn't exactly forced on you. It was something that you picked up out of interest and passion. Because I think that a lot of us can say that we got we got piano force onto us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for a lot. I think for a lot of Asian kids, they had yeah. their parents force piano into them. <laughs> yeah, but we can't wait to hear you play one day. You know, we'll probably look up. You guys already her listeners look up Nancy's YouTube videos. Hopefully, she has some videos of her playing piano. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of ones from like college way back when, but yeah, it's, it's my meditation nowadays when I play. That's awesome. But yeah, I mean, flash forward a couple of years and now you're at UC Berkeley, you know, you went to Berkeley on scholarships. Congratulations on that. And I want to hear about the story about you finding your first company, you know, yeah. like about the bar situation. How does this all happen? <laughs> I would say like throughout my life, all the things that I was uh, doing leading up to my senior year, meeting my Natalie Bioscience co-founder at a bar, uh, was I was I 
diversified myself in a lot of different types of activities. And it was strictly because I love meeting new people and I'm, uh, I guess I have lots of different interests and I wish I could be like some folks, they're just like really into one thing and they dive really, really deeply into only one industry or topic. I could never do that. I wish I could, but I couldn't. Like I loved music. I loved politics. I loved tech and the sciences. Uh, and so even high school, I was doing a lot of activities around that and a lot of leadership around that. And so then by the time I was in college, I was sort of used to, if I meet somebody brilliant, I'm like, okay, I have to go and work with them. And I learned uh, just through lots of different organizations and interactions that smart people are in high demand and their attention easily shifts uh, based on who is able to grab their attention the best, right? And so uh, for my senior year, while I'm at this bar, um, I this is actually after a hacking session with a couple of high school friends um, that I was meeting up with in Colorado. Um, I hadn't seen them in a little bit. And so we were just working on this other random app together. And then it was like midnight. It's like, all right, let's go take a break, go to this bar called Sundown Saloon in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. So we go down, super dive bar. It's like the ones where you have the peanuts and you just like throw the peanut shell on, on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're sitting there and uh, I basically like, there's this very tall guy over there at the other side of the bar. And I'm like, oh, who's, who's that guy? And my friend was like, oh, he's a famous biochemist. And I'm like, okay, that's not every day that somebody will know this random biochemist at the bar. And he was like, yes, this is like the star student, star PhD student. And I was like, I have to meet him. And I have no shame. And so I was like, tell him that I want to talk to him. <laughs> Literally, my friend goes over there and is like, hey, that Asian chick over there wants to talk with you. And I'm sure he has other things in mind when he comes up to me to, to chat and he speaks Chinese fluently. I mean, he literally was a genius. Um, he's MIT. When he was in high school, my co-founder Balaji Shridhar developed the uh, one of the most efficient ways to remove arsenic from water while he was in high school. Wow. He's still getting royalty payments from water treatment plants for this technology he developed in high school. Absolutely brilliant person who uh, at a very young age, you know, got an MD and PhD. Um, and so at midnight at a bar, we were just talking about, uh, for example, uh, cell regeneration and protein scaffolding, <laughs> all the things that he was working on in his lab. And so I said, all right, I want to talk with you about building a company literally in the next like 12 hours later. So we're chatting, we've set the foundation uh, at this bar. And because I understand smart people, brilliant people always have their attention shifted uh, a lot of people are just, you know, they, they talk, but they don't follow through. I literally set a time and send him my ad address to meet him immediately the, I guess, technically the same day since it was after midnight to go and build a company. So he came over, this is at my parents' house. And I was like, all right, let's build a company. Uh, you do the science part. I'll take care of all of the business part. And the reason he believed that I could actually execute on this is throughout college, I was building a lot of different apps, monetized a lot of random projects that I was doing strict, you know, whether it was like a school project, um, I would take it all the way. I would build something for my, one of my engineering classes, but instead of just saying, okay, submit it for a grade, I would literally go and try to monetize it. And I did that successfully for a couple of them. And so that was sort of my data to, demonstrate, hey, I will make things 
happen. And so then once I got back to Berkeley, we were just working remotely on Nanalee, which is we wanted to develop a polymer that eliminates refrigeration for vaccines. Uh, and so every single day while remotely, and you know, we've got at the time, I think we were using Skype. I know Skype's not cool anymore, but at the time we were using Skype. And every single day we would just have milestones. I said, you focus on the science, I will get all the funding for it. And, uh, and that's what we did. Wow. wow. That is, that's quite the hustler. Incredible. You know, we need some new Asian hustle network sweater now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, I love how you just kind of pointed out that when you spot brilliant people, you have to meet them. I think for a lot of people, especially when they're not familiar, you know, just like getting themselves out there, they feel intimidated, but I love how you have that hustle mentality and love you kind of just jumped right into it and said like, I have to meet this person. I have to be honest with you though. When I saw your article like six or seven years ago, I made a goal one day that I wanted to talk to you face to face <laughs> because I also want to meet very talented and smart people. Mm-hmm. You know, I never thought the day would come now, like six years later, but here we are. You know, I'm super excited for that. That's awesome. Okay, so what's the next six year goal? Because you're going to achieve that for sure, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'll see. Uh, the next step is just talking to people like you, growing Asian House Network, building a fostering supported community. Because I think that, you know, for the Asian community, it's so important for us to have people on, have people as leaders that look like us and sound like us sort of break through. And obviously hearing your story like six years ago really broke me through. I just remember like, right, flashback time. Six years ago, I just moved to the Bay Area as a software engineer. And I was like living with six other roommates, five other roommates in like the small house. I'm like, man, I'm making six figures. But I can't afford anything else. It sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I was looking for like starting companies, starting different ideas. I remember your article came up on Facebook or something. And I saw that immediately. I said, it says 24 year old successfully built two successful companies. Right. And I showed my roommate that I'm like, Nanzi, I want to meet her one day. I wanted to like do business with her one day. I don't know what I'm going to do with her, <laughs> but I want to meet her one day. And here we are in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So you're definitely very inspirational, you know, and, you know, flash for a couple more years, like you started Implug, you know, with five letter co-founders in LA this time. Like, what was that process like? I know you guys pivoted a couple of times. There, there was a lot of hard lessons learned uh, through the startup, but I want to hear more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So my senior year, I start Natalie Bioscience. I get it funded. Uh, we, we get grants both from the government and universities, institutions, foundations, uh, and as well as VC. And so we had it funded for four years. And at the time I was serving as CEO, my senior year of Natalie Bioscience, all the uh, folks we have on the team all had PhDs or MDs, except for me, the CEO, which is kind of you know ironic. And so I quickly realized that my skill set was capped for what we needed at Natalie Bioscience. So I handed the reins over to my amazing co-founder, Dr. Balaji Shridhar, to run the company. Uh, and at that time, right before graduation, actually, I mean, I have a funny graduation story too. Um, I meet my co-founder for Implug. And so I was actually already running Natalie, but um, it had the funding it needed, which I, I helped get it there, but we had a lot of R&D that was needed and that wasn't my expertise. And so I wanted to make sure I was using my time wisely for skill sets and knowledge and experience that I could apply towards the company. And so when I met my co-founder for Implug, I was like, oh, this is much more of my background. I wanna go and, and do Implug. And so I meet him for 45 minutes in person 
by the end of the 45 minutes, I knew I wanted to start Implug with my co-founder, David. And mm-hmm. so we, we started and I, I moved to LA a week later um, to start Implug. And this was really right after leaving Berkeley. Well, I like how, how action oriented yeah, you are. Like 45 minutes, yeah. the next 12 hours, just like one, it's one week later. Yeah. I, I love it. I love the fact that there's no mental block. Mm-hmm. And has this something that you were almost born with, like, like not feeling the imposter syndrome, not feeling the fear and just wanting to go for things out of curiosity? Like, did your parents foster that or is it something you foster on your own? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I didn't feel like I had anything to lose. I think having grown up in in China and still visiting my relatives in rural China, where there's no running water, it's still pumping water out of wells. It's just like, you know, I get a roof over my head. I have college education. Um, I, if if it doesn't work out, like there's a friend that's going to let me crash on their couch. Right. So there's all these things where I didn't, I didn't have a family that I had to take care of or kids. And so because of that, it's like, why not? Um, I really have nothing to lose. Yes. The alternative is doing investment banking um, at a fancy firm and getting paid that, but I didn't, I didn't grow up with any money. And so having money, and I was still pretty happy, a very happy person. And so because of that, it was like, actually, I just care about building something fantastic and great and impactful and that made a lot uh that i care a lot more about that than money so when you take and remove some of these fears uh fear of failure because again if i fail that's i i didn't think it was that bad i'll just go crash at a friend's place and go find a job didn't seem that bad not making any money well i never had any money to begin with and so that's okay um, and removing those barriers made it a lot easier for me to dive into things that i really loved and people that i really wanted to work with Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that mentality. Yeah. And we'll have to know like the business strategy of Enplug as well as the marketing strategy, because we understand that when you had first started Enplug, you were actually going like door to door, kind of knocking on everyone's door, asking if they would be interested in something like this. It's and starting from like the whole process of insulation as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty insane. And how has that shifted over time? Yeah. So initially when I met my co-founder, David, the, the idea is that we would go and build a network of screens that were smart screens that would recognize who was in front of the screen and serve advertising and content. And so we started building that out and realized, wow, CapEx is really, really huge for this kind of company. We'd have to go and raise money to be able to install screens everywhere and support it with advertising dollars. And we realized we really don't enjoy selling ads. It's very competitive to sell ads against a Google or Facebook. And with out of home advertising, it's hard to measure and track conversion. So how do we convince advertisers to renew? Uh, But then we realized what we're really good at is software. So initially when we were trying to build this network of smart screens, we needed a software to be able to control remotely what all of these screens were showing, be able to show social media feeds, be able to show that restaurants uh, Yelp scores and positive Yelp reviews, be able to have people take Instagram photos, hashtag that location's name or uh, tag that location's name and show up on the screen, the TV screen, that location, right? And so we're trying to find a software to do that. We realized all the existing digital signage software was really expensive, very, very difficult to use uh, and just built decades ago, not modern technology at all. And so initially it was, we were building 
a solution and we were the first customers of our solution. So we weren't trying to build digital signage software as the end product. We were just building it for ourselves to use. And then slowly our customers realized the software that we built to remotely control screens was way better than you know trying to sell advertising. They're like, we just want to use your software. We don't need you to install a screen. We have screens in our businesses. Just give us your software. What do you want for the software? And we're like, oh wow, we, we didn't really think about like charging for or the software and we love building product. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was a lot more fun to sell software and a product than to sell advertising. And so we really shifted to then selling software. Initially, we were selling the software to restaurants and bars where they would show digital menus using our software, or they would show, you know, like a fun jukebox game or Instagram, the social, social media feeds. And then we shifted to being able to show content in elevators, showing dashboards and metrics inside of corporate offices, uh, showing uh, financial data and uh, information inside of banks or universities. Mm -hmm. and and so that's actually where most of our market is today, which is our screens power, the screens you see in elevators, inside of banks, universities, hospitals, manufacturing facilities. And that pivot was because this is what we're really good at building, but also what we enjoyed building. Uh, and this is where these customers are willing to pay a lot more for what we're building than some of the initial V1, V2 of our products. Love that. I love how you the customers sort of, sort of help you pinpoint your value proposition that you're proposing mm -hmm. and actually made it more scalable. So and I, I told the story uh, of what happened over the course of like five years and narrowed it down to like a couple of <laughs> sentences, right? A very long multi-year project to make this happen. Yeah, we all we understand talking to a lot of people on the show that the entrepreneur journey is often very difficult and very lonely. You know, luckily that you, you have found very strong co-founders along that process. Can you quickly talk about any kind of mistakes that you made along the way in terms of hiring or just, I want to hear the story about how, about how you even became CEO of Inplug because that's pretty unique in its own. Yes, yes. So I had, uh, there was a team of five co-founders and really I almost actually think about it as like eight or nine because we uh, from day one had some amazing engineers be part of our team that are still part of our team today and in fact one of the uh, two of them one is our CTO Justina and the other is our chief software architect Bruno uh, and so when we first started there was no titles it was all of the co-founders uh, were going to do some kind of specific task and there's so much to do with digital signage uh, that we really did need that many people with different skill sets to manage different aspects of the business. And for me, naturally, it became finance, strategy, uh, fundraising, uh, sales. So all the, the business side piece. And so I was doing that. And then eventually, I think it was somehow just very naturally just said, all right, Nancy, you will, you'll be CEO. And I was like, okay, all right, I guess <laughs> yeah, now sure, let's, let's do that. But there was a very humbling experience uh, less than a year into building the company where my co-founders one day just sits me down and is like, Nancy, we don't think you should be CEO. Whoa. And I was like, you know, this came kind of out of the blue. And I was like, you know what, if you don't want me to be CEO, no, no worry. It's all good. I didn't really know the, the reasons why. And we were, we're very like, we're 22 years old at, yeah. at this point. Like most for all of us, this was like our first job. We didn't really understand management and all of that. And it was basically a very small thing where 
we were uh, we we hired somebody to run sales, and my co-founders thought that the salesperson preferred somebody else as the CEO, my co-founder, uh, and so then they were like, oh, we we think David should be. Uh, the, the CEO. And I was like, sure, David's awesome. He's my co-founder. He's the one that, you know, first told me about the idea, happy to give the reins to him. So handed the reins over to him for uh, a little bit. And then a month later, they're like, wait, Nancy, we need you to be CEO again. We made a big mistake. Can you, can you be, can you be, are you willing to do that? And I was like, all right, sure. For me, and I think I'm so glad to have that experience because one, I think it's always good to be reminded of, you know, we're privileged to be in any kind of position we are and never to tie our ego any into any kind of position. For me, it was always about, I just want to build the best company. I don't care about what my title is. If folks think I am better uh, suited for another role, I'm happy to do that. But if they think I should be sealed, then, then great. And it was nice to go through that formal exercise of evaluating who do we want as CEO, but it happened in a very, like probably not the most professional way of approaching how we select a CEO amongst co-founders, but it certainly it, that's, that's how it happened. And, uh, and we, we learned a lot from that experience, which is maybe don't choose a CEO based on who your employee, somebody you randomly hired wants. Oh man. Oh, wow. Wow, what a story. Um, I, I just wanted to say, I love just your mindset. And I think we often get so tied up with like titles and names and stuff. And we often forget what that North Star is, why we're in it in the first place. Like what is our purpose in building this company, right? But I love how you were, you know, you were just pretty much like, you know, whatever is best for the company, I'm willing to go with it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we heard from your other podcast too about your challenges of being a female founder. You know, how you notice that you have to, you have to try diff, like much, much harder at fundraising or getting your respect or something like that. I want to hear more about that, you know, because we are all about uplifting and empowering women in our Asian hospital community. And just by hearing your piece of the story, and we want to in, inspire other female founders to, to take action and create their own legacy and companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I'm really grateful for are my best friends are all amazing female founders. They are the crew that I spend a lot of time with. They are incredible. They're inspiring. They uh, run all sorts of different companies across industries. And I'm just so grateful to have them because we have that shared experience and we have each other's back. We know what we go through on a daily basis. Certainly when I started fundraising was really hard. Every person that I was pitching, I just looked so different than who they were and the other founders, tech founders, especially that they were used to uh, seeing. And I want to give a lot of credit also to my co-founder, our CTO, Justina, uh, for at the time, I think she was like one of like two or three female um, CTOs in the Los Angeles area of a, of a uh, tech company. And so she uh, is incredibly accomplished in how she is able to manage um, the engineering team and just recruit top talent. I want to also give her a big shout out, uh, but certainly throughout the journey, every single day. And I think for women who want to be in leadership roles, we all feel it from like as young as we can remember the extra hurdles we have to overcome. And I credit my mom for being able to, you know, kind of be giving me a really realistic picture of the world, which is you just, you have to, you have to work harder, sadly. Um, but make sure along the way that you make it easier for any other woman that comes and wants to uh, 
go in the path that you have already uh, moved down. And so as a young girl, I am very grateful. My mom would share lots of stories with me about successful women, everyone ranging um, from uh, Amelia Earhart um, to Condoleezza Rice. My mom is a big fan of Condoleezza Rice, who was like, look at her, she plays the piano and then became <laughs> Secretary of State. You too, you play the piano. Maybe you can be Secretary of State. You know, that was, that was the bridge she built. <laughs> um, but I'm so grateful because stories, I think, impact uh, people a lot. And my, so when I was growing up, my mom filled my world with successful women. So I never actually felt like there was no successful woman out there. Um, and I, I think she did it intentionally. Um, and, and, and it made a really big impact because I could see, oh, look at all these different women accomplished in all sorts of different uh, industries. I have a sister who's 18 years old. She's a freshman at UC Berkeley. And similarly, I try to fill her world and remind her of all the successful women uh, that uh, have been in history and, and you know are still alive today so that she knows that it's absolutely possible. I love that. It's a great older sister mentality and just I'm a tiger sister for sure with her. <laughs> Very much a tiger sister. Definitely. I do want to shift the focus a bit too and you know talk a little bit more about the stuff that you're working on right now. And I think I saw an article recently, I'm not too sure, about one of the companies under your portfolio that went IPO recently. Is that right? So yes, I'm involved in a couple of different SPACs. Uh, I know uh, this is something that I think has become very popular and hot uh, recently. So I'm a seed investor, at-risk investor of a, uh, of a $450 million SPAC that uh, IPO'd a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and just very, very excited um, about the whole team. Joseph, who's also a UC Berkeley alum, is the CEO and a friend that I've known uh, for a couple of years. Actually, I met him when I was hosting uh, an alumni event at my house for UC Berkeley, and he was one of the attendees. And so I always joke, you know, you never know where you're going to meet your future co-founders or business partners. Wow, that's that's amazing. And let's, let's dive deep into that and a little bit more because we we're looking at you, right? You're a CEO of Input. You know, you're doing all these different things and you currently manage a fund that's two for $5 billion. Is that correct? Oh no, this is so, so this is, I'm, I'm just, I get to be one of the seed investors. I'm not doing the, the hard work. The hard work is done by management. Um, I'm on the board of a couple of publicly traded companies. Wow. And again, uh, as a board member, I say it's, it's management that does the hard work as a board member. I'm there to support, ask the questions uh, and be a resource for management. Of course, representing you know, I have to say like the cheesy thing, representing shareholder interests, which is what we do, but it's such a like legal jargon. At the end of the day, it's being a board member that's making sure um, that we've got the right team in place to build a really successful company. Yeah, yeah. Let's quickly talk about being a board member because I know this topic is it's relatively foreign to the Asian community in some ways. It's like, wait, how do you become a board member and whatnot? Can you quickly talk about what is a board member and how do you become a board member essentially? Because when we talk about entrepreneurship, we're like CEOs, founders, CTOs, but there's never the conversation about, okay, what's the board? Why do we need a board? And how do you get, how do you even get on a board? You know? Yes, absolutely. So I actually never really thought about boards and the power of a board, because again, I, my parents were teachers and then engineers. I didn't grow up around a business community at all. And so I learned all of this sort of on the job and a person I want to credit 
um, to giving me this idea of I should be on boards is my ex-boyfriend's mom, who I'm still really good friends with. In fact, I'm still good friends with all my ex-boyfriends and, and their family. They're they're all amazing people. But um, my college ex-boyfriend's mom, she's an amazing businesswoman. And when I was like 25 years old, she was like, you should be on public company boards. And I'm like, Mrs. Reed, thank you so much for believing in me. But I think generally people who sit on public company boards, they're 50, 60 year, years old. It's just, you know, they're much older and they've been CEOs of these massive companies in the past. And that's traditionally what it's been. There's legislation now that is shifting the demographics um, and encouraging boards and management to be open to now more diverse uh, members. Uh, but that was sort of my introduction to boards and to be like, oh, well, what's so interesting about boards? There's a couple of things, which is that you are the ones that are uh, managing management. So there's the CEOs and the CFOs, the COs, right? But who's managing and watching the COE value? It's, it's the board. And the board is, of course, representing the rest of all the shareholders for a public company. You have boards for nonprofits, you have, you have government boards, uh, you have uh, public company boards. And so I, I served on all of these. Um, it started out the first boards I served on, of course, were my own company boards. Uh, and then the next one that I got uh, was um, nonprofit boards, um, which was Lady Gaga uh, Foundation's Youth Advisory Board. And that was such a great eye-opening experience for me about what it means to be a board member, uh, a nonprofit. And then, um, then I was 24 years old uh, when Covington Capital, which manages about $3 billion, they reached out to me and they said, we would love for you to be on the board of advisors for us. And then I was looking at the other board of advisors and it's all people who have built massive companies. Like a, one of the other uh, board members, he uh, was the president uh, at, uh, Disney TV and and just super impressive. I was like, wait, I'm 24. Are you are you sure? And I was like, what's the catch? And they're like, there's no catch. We will pay you a lot of money for attending each of the the meetings. And so for public company boards to give you a sense, oftentimes the compensation for um, it is powerful. And I think I, I mentioned compensation because I think it's one where uh, it demonstrates boards are really significant uh, positions. Uh, with a lot of influence in a company, both on defining the strategy of the company, which means, you know, how do you speak to your customers? Um, uh, but also, who are you hiring in the company? And what does diversity look like and culture look like in your company? The boards all get involved with that. But boards, you, you get paid a couple hundred thousand dollars to be on boards of companies um, for, for public companies generally. Um, and so one of the legislation that has come out, of course, um, that we've heard a lot of conversation uh, in our community is basically the requirement now not only to have a minimum number of women on boards, but also uh, folks who are diverse or from minority communities. Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I think that is going to be really, really impactful for improving the lack of diversity currently on public company boards. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I would love to know you're serving on boards of different companies while running um, your own company. How, how do you manage your manage time? Your time? <laughs> and how do you make sure you're allocating time to, you know, your prioritized um, tasks and every your, day? And your mental health. Yeah. 
Uh, it's actually so um, important, I think, for folks to to realize, and I tell my sister this too, I have lots of free time. I'm going to Colorado on Thursday, and I'm going to be celebrating my stepmom's 50th birthday. I'm going to be taking the weekend to just hang out with family. And I take a lot of me time, just time where I, I go, I play video games. I go spend time with friends. Uh, I go out to to eat. I make sure I sleep and exercise. Those are really, really important. I think if I, I actually believe when people find time for themselves and make sure to craft times and not feel guilty about it, they'll actually be more productive and get things done. Um, and so even though I'm involved with all of these different organizations, I really do have lots of time. Um, and for example, like my boyfriend, Jonathan, he when we first started, dating, he was not convinced that I was that I had lots of free time. He was like, you're never going to see me. And I was like, no, actually, I bet I will always have time to see you. And it'll be you that ends up. He's like, no, there's no way. Anyways, it ends up being that, which is that I, I really do actually prioritize above anything health, health and spending, spending fulfilling time with friends and family um, above, above everything else. If, if we take care of ourselves and our health, um, then we can really take care of business. I love that. And, and next, out of curiosity now, like how you built enough systems and processes in place to like be able to delegate that and create time for yourself? Yes. And I think even in the early days, uh, it never, things never feel like work and that always helps. So when do, when do things not feel like work? Things don't feel like work when you're doing something you're good at that you enjoy. And so as much as possible, I try to make sure the things I work on have a lot of impact. And it seems like I'm getting lots of things done because if I'm really good at this one thing and I can knock it out in like an hour, but somebody else might take like five hours to do it, then I can do that kind of task for many different organizations and be able to get things done that others might take way longer to get done, right? So my output at the end of the day is the same, but I don't need as much time. And so things with strategy, fundraising, product, finance, those are things that I'm good at, building teams I enjoy doing and can evaluate. And so things that I'm not good on that would take me way longer. And I don't think I could be involved in multiple organizations if I was doing that. For example, in the early days, of course, everyone on the team was coding and building uh, the initial lines of code. But now if I'm not good at that, if I were told to go and build this new app for Mplug, I would never see any of my friends because that's not my core competency. But you tell me, hey, uh, we want to build this next product feature and we need the outline of all uh, the scenarios and the user experience that's when I can come in and I say, okay, this is how I think it should look. Uh, and I will sketch it out and design it. I can quickly uh, draw it out and I love doing it and get it done a lot faster um, and then hand it over to the engineers to go and build. And so that's, that's how I think I've been able to do a lot of different things uh, for different organization. It ends up being the same thing, strategy, business, finance, fundraising, building team. That's, that's amazing. I think your sense of awareness like really shines through. You know, you're fully aware of who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are. I think, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, as you're under your journey, that's something that you first face is like your, your limitations, literally like, oh, what am I good at? What am I bad at? And when you're facing that, how, what was going through your mind as you're like evaluating yourself and sorting things out? Did you 
write in journals? Did you write in whiteboards? Did you just sit there and think? Or did you have an executive coach tell you? Like, how'd you figure all this part out? Because that's not easy, by the way. You make it sound so simple. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, you have to go through some hardships to really see how you function as a person. Yeah, uh, I would credit, there's a lot of organization I was a part of in high school, um, I guess just growing up, being very open to feedback and taking feedback and not taking it personally. Um, And the willingness to give feedback encourages other people to give feedback. And then when you hear this feedback, then I think that's where you constantly improve. So in my early days, it was piano. Piano, you get immediate feedback, right? You play a wrong note, your teacher says, you played a wrong note uh, and and you need to do this better, that better, right? Like it's, it's totally okay. So I think as much as possible, if people put themselves in a place where they receive feedback, that helps a lot. Then in uh, college, it was being part of lots of different organizations. It was uh, being part of student government where there are different political parties at Berkeley. There's the liberal party and the very liberal party. Um, <laughs> I was part of the liberal party. I was elected to be vice president for our student body. And so I, uh, felt like I was never doing anything right because I would receive feedback from the other party about everything I was doing wrong, but it's a humbling experience and you learn, you, you can start seeing other people's perspective and then you start being more critical and evaluating your own work. But at the same time, I had my other party say, Hey, this is what you're, you're doing correctly. Uh, so in a startup environment, the best people to give feedback are really your team. And so do you make it easy for your teammates, your employees, your co-founders to give you feedback? And are you a person that is open to that? So clear Clearly, uh, when we started Implug, feedback was very, very open communication, right? Enough that my co-founder was like, we just don't think you should be CEO, right? Like super honest, like immediately when they wanted it to happen, they, they shared it. But then when they changed their mind, they immediately said, hey, we want you to. And so I was always receiving feedback from my co-founder. And I had the benefit of having four other co-founders. Um, all of us started the company together. Uh, we, we actually weren't friends. We didn't really know each other before starting the company. And so because of that, uh, it was easier to take emotion out of it. It wasn't like, you know, somebody that you grew up with who was saying, hey, like, I just really don't like these lines of code you wrote. I think you organized it in not a great way. And you take it personally because it's a person you know for a long time, right? For us, it was always business. Like we're sharing this because we want what's best for the company. It never felt personal. And so I think that's a really good um, places to get feedback. And that's where growth for me happens a lot of where I need to work before I, I was told in my early days, my co-founder said, you, um, you are a workaholic in a very unhealthy way that makes everybody else feel like they can't take any time off. And I was like, Oh wow. Like, so now, I mean, like with like it's very shifted away from that. It used to be that I would always want to do these engineering sprints where it's literally like three days of like nonstop. You don't stop coding until you finish this thing. And my co-founder is like, this isn't college where you have these hackathons and you can do that. These are like professional people. And like, you can't just like have them be away from their family. Right. And so I got immediate feedback and I adjusted, I adjusted to, to this feedback. And I was like, all right, yes, my, my co-founders are right. But it was definitely, it's still a process. Um, my uh, CTO, Justina, she gives me feedback all the time, still every day. And I really appreciate it. It'll be like, uh, it'll be like, Nancy, I have this taken care of. You don't need to get involved in this. Or it's like, Nancy, I need you to be like involved in this aspect. Can I get help? Right. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And uh, I, I try to stay really open 
uh, with feedback. And I tell my little sister this too. She's, she's uh, in a, a business fraternity, the same that, that I was part of at Berkeley where, you know, there's some hazing involved and I'm super pro hazing because I'm like, you're receiving feedback. People are yelling at you, but they're yelling <laughs> at you because they're telling you what you're doing wrong. And it's better for people to tell you what you're doing wrong earlier than finding out like way later in life. That's one way you look at it. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the topic of team and team building, can you talk about the, the culture that you've built within your team and your co-founders? Because I we've heard of a couple of podcasts before and you mentioned that you guys have really built like a really strong culture within your team, just eating lunch every day together, Skiing, eating, eating dinner. Yeah, trips. all of these retreats and everything. We'd love to know how, like how you built your culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've made a very much a family oriented culture, which means uh, now. So anytime we do any kind of team activity, the whole entire family for that teammate is involved. They can bring their spouse, their partner, their kids. Um, we pre-COVID, we did a team vacation to Mexico where we said, we'll pay for you to bring uh, a plus one, whoever that may be. And it was a pure vacation. Literally, like we had we had a, a new employee who was joining at the time. He was like, oh, I bet we're going to have like team meetings. Nope. It, he was like, oh, wow. Like literally it was just full on vacation. We just hung out with the team. And so for me, it's very much our culture is hey, if you're spending half of your waking life building something with people, you should enjoy working with those people. You should find it fulfilling and have fun and feel like you're growing. And so we really try to build that into our culture. Uh, I think a lot of the things come from come from myself and our CTO uh, as a leader of the company, which is that we both really care about continuous growth. And so we're always pushing ourselves and our teammates to go explore things outside of work too. So we support our teammates. If they uh, do competitive beach volleyball, we'll go support them there. Um, one of our teammates, uh, Jesus, he is a nationally ranked Yu-Gi-Oh player. We <laughs> and we even had him uh, teach the entire team how to play Yu-Gi-Oh, right? So we really try to be supportive all around, recognizing that work isn't just one thing that shows up in your life during certain periods of time, but it really does kind of spread out throughout uh, your life. And we want to make sure that it's always positive as much as possible. Yeah. And tell Jesus that I want to meet him because uh, <laughs> I, also, <laughs> I used to play a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh as a kid. And I, I used to win tournaments as well. So I'm not sure if I was ranked or not, but it did help with my sense of strategies in some way. It was like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to win? You know? And yeah, I definitely want to meet him. And I think it's great that you're building such a family culture because I think that's the one thing that people always underestimate is as leaders, like your vision and your personality is shining throughout the entire company. You know, like how you feel about something, it's like, oh, oh, show in the company. You know, if you're insecure about something, oh, show in the company. If you're confident about something, oh, show in the company. You know, and I think it was amazing that it's just a reflection of who you are as a person. You know, completely. I, I think everything down to even the vocabulary people use, um, the certainly the team activities, whether people feel comfortable giving feedback or not, all comes down uh, to, you know, the, the leaders. How do the leaders interact with one another and with their teammates? Yeah, definitely agree. And, you know, as we're winding down the podcast, I'm kind of curious, like, what are your, your goals next year or two years or three years? Because it always seems like, you're finding time to add more impactful things into your, your awesome resume already. Like what, what do you, what do you see yourself in the next couple of years? And I have 
one more question after this about NFTs, but that's that's later, right? <laughs> <laughs> ask this question first. I definitely have a couple of different goals. So I'm involved, of course, with different companies ranging from our public companies to my own company, uh, invested in a TV show that I hope comes out this year. It's uh, almost all Asian cast. Super excited about it. The first season uh, is already out. It's called Drama World and it's with a a bunch of actually amazing um, tech founders. Uh, alongside myself, our producers on the TV show, including Kevin Lin, who's a co-founder of Twitch, and Steve Chen, who's a co-founder of YouTube. They brought me in to be one of the producers. We're super excited about this show. Uh, And then, of course, there are some of the the SPACs. I'm really excited for uh, the SPACs and the companies that we will buy uh, with the SPACs. Um, And then outside of that, I actually have a couple of really fun travel plans with friends. So with people getting vaccines and different countries opening up, there's a couple of uh, checklist items. So climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, going to Patagonia, um, going and doing a national parks road trip uh, around the U.S. are a couple of things I'm looking forward to. Can't wait for that. And we're looking forward to your show too. Just let us know. We'll help you. uh, (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think the last second to last question is I want to hear about your thoughts on NFTs. Oh, I, I mean, so actually for Implug, we have a bunch of different ideas because with NFTs, you can now show like digital art, right? You can have a specific digital art tied, um, and, and, and knowing that this is like your special, mm-hmm. unique piece of art limited edition and having it appear on screens. And so, of course, we have an art app at Implug. And so uh, my NFT exposure right now is all around art and digital, of course, all of it, like digital goods, but specifically art. I think it's the future. I mean, it makes so much sense. You know, you had back in the day, the, the baseball cards, um, and I suppose you could sort of forge these baseball cards, but it might be harder to, you know, forge these digital goods. Um, yeah. And for our listeners, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. Tokens. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. Think it's huge. I'm excited about it. Everything kind of blockchain related. Um, I actually have this giant Bitcoin piece of artwork in my, in my pool room. <laughs> you guys want to see it? I will. We do it right after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, the reason why I brought up NFTs is because I'm like, wait, Implug NFTs, it sounds like you guys are a match made in heaven, you know? So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. But I think yeah. Absolutely, you, you nailed it. And we are, we are working on it. Yeah, we're looking forward to, to hearing more about that when it's ready. Yeah, likewise. And so we have one last question for you, Nancy, and that is one, one advice could you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? I say uh, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So be thoughtful of who you spend time with. That is that is a really good advice. Yes. And that being said, I'm sorry, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would well, I, I walk you out of my life. <laughs> just kidding. My, yeah. my co-founders, my team, my friends, uh, incredible people like you, Maggie and Brian, like I, I'm just grateful that I feel like on a daily basis, I'm inspired. Mm-hmm. I am motivated. Um, and, and so grateful to be able to interact and learn from the people I, I get to meet. Yeah, definitely. We're grateful to have you on the show. And yeah. how can our listeners find out more about you online, Nancy? Well, you can find me on Instagram. It's at Nancy Lou. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, 
and I use Twitter a little bit, which is all, all Nancy Liu, N-A-N-X-I-L-I-U. Awesome. awesome. Well, it was amazing hearing your story today. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Nancy. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. So happy me. Yeah, I was so excited. I mean, thanks for inspiring me all these years ago and opportunity to meet right now. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.